Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's, it's actually a real privilege to get to talk to one of our Grace Community Church alum, Susan Jackman. Um, I, we don't have a ton of time, so I'm not going to I'll let her introduce herself. Susan, um, for those who maybe don't know or remember you, tell us a little bit about how you were connected to Grace Community Church. Hey, everyone. Um, I went to Campbell University, and I played softball there. Um, Drew Peterson was actually my softball coach my freshman year. And actually, I came here throughout, and I worked at... Um, Sunday school, I taught there, and then I also babysat with one of my friends every Sunday night here, so I know a lot of the kids. So. Great. Um, and so, after you graduated from Campbell and uh, went off from Grace, Grace um, where did you end up? What were you doing? I taught first and second grade in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Okay. And um, so, why are you here now? Tell us a little bit about what God's been doing in your life recently? Uh, um, about three months ago, I was accepted to go on the World Race. And the World Race is an 11-month mission trip where I'm going to go to um, 11 months, or I'm going to go to 11 countries in the next 11 months starting in two weeks from now. And the whole um, mindset behind it is to go and serve whatever capacity is needed in each country. So we're going to be going with a group of 48 individuals, ages 21 to 35, and we're going to go from country to country and serve at the ministry sites that Adventures and Mission has connections with there. Okay, cool. And so we were talking before, and some of those things that you're going to be doing um, range from working with orphans uh, and widows to uh, serving and praying in hospitals to working with local uh, ministries, praying for them. Uh, and and tell us a little bit about uh, how you felt God was calling you to those things, and then maybe even more specifically, how those things are connected to the gospel, and and how you'll have the opportunity to to share the gospel while you're doing this. Well, since I became a Christian, which actually was right before I went to Campbell, um, God's really put it on my heart to do international missions, and. He has been showing that over and over again. He's just been revealing himself. Um, at Campbell, I worked at Fort Caswell. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. And um, there, it was already on my heart to do international missions, but there, I had a third-grade girl just look up at me and ask what I wanted to do with my life. And I told her I wanted to be a lion tamer because I thought it was funny, but it wasn't good enough. So she just looked at me, and she had no idea God put it on my heart already to do go overseas, go to Africa, do mission work there. And she just looked up at me and stared for about a minute or so and was just like, Susan, I think you should go to Africa and go work with orphans there. And that was just amazing to me that God can speak through a third grader. Um, And that's just one instance I could say time after time where people have spoken over me that I should go, um, go overseas and do missions. And... So the last two years I spent teaching, which was wonderful, but I knew God um, put it on my heart to love those who have often gone not loved um, and work with the orphans, work with the widows. And so I just wanted to surrender after. I'm a very stubborn person, um, so God's had to tell me multiple times through many people that this is it, Susan, this is what you should be doing. And so I finally just decided about three months ago to apply for the world race. Um, and I got accepted, and God's just been 
um, showing up so much the last three months, showing me that this is definitely what he's called me to do. Um, great. Uh, really, the, the last thing I want to ask is, okay, so you're going to 11 countries in 11 months, which seems exhausting. I don't, this is actually the second to last thing, sorry. Um, but that's a limited time in each. And so you're going to have this great opportunity to connect with people. You're going to have this great opportunity to share the gospel with people. But then you're going to pack up and head on to the next place. Uh, what's going to happen to those people when you leave? Um, how, how is uh, world race preparing for that? Uh, I think that's actually going to be one of the hardest things for me is going from month to month, loving on people, and then leaving. And I've already had that mindset. Um, but when you think about it in the eternal perspective, that if they receive Christ and they know about him, then we're going to see him again in heaven. Um, but Adventures and Missions actually partners with the ministries, and World Racers will be continually going through there. And we also... Um, work with the ministry site and the contacts there and encourage them and pray for them and speak into their lives as well. So Adventures and Mission is constantly working with these local contacts. Right. And, and uh, Susan was also saying before just to, um, that, that Adventures and Mission works with local churches as well. And so um, just like she's saying, like when she leaves, when her team leaves, uh, they're not going to just leave people to kind of disciple themselves. There will be local churches that are that are partnering with those people and and, and connecting with those people. Um, you've got eleven months, and then you're you're back. And so, um, in a year from now, we're having another potluck or, or whatever, and and you're you're here. What are you hoping to be able to say that the Lord has done through you and and in you to you um, over the over the next 11 months? I just want to be completely uncomfortable um, being in a spot where I have to depend on God for everything, doing ministry in ways that I'd never done before, um, just to see what he really wants to do with me after this. And um, just excited to build relationships with people there and share Christ to them. So I don't know what next year is going to look like, but I'm excited about that, just the unknown and seeing what God's going to do this year. Right. And so if there are people now who are saying, all right, we know Susan, we, we remember her working with our kids, um, we want to help support her, um, how can we do that? Uh, definitely pray for me because I leave in two weeks, So, and I found out about two months ago, so it's been a whirlwind. Um, pray for my team. I'm on a team of six girls um, that we're traveling with 48 people from country to country. But then we split off into our teams, and I'm on a team of six girls. So if you could pray for them and pray for finances for them and unity as a team, we build that unity very quickly so we can spread the gospel um, as a united team even more effectively. And um, if you feel God leading you to support as well, um, I don't have to be fully funded until February of 2014. So if you feel led to do monthly sponsorship or a one-time sponsorship, that would be awesome. Only if God's leading you to do that. And so if if that is you, um, if you want to pray for Susan, if you just want to keep up with her over the course of this next year, or if you want to uh, give, 
Um, there's a website that's right there, and it's in your bulletin. Um, it's her. Blo- it's a link to her blog, susanjackman.theworldrace.org. Um, and there's also the ability to donate there. And when you click donate, it'll give you all the options of if you want to do it monthly or if you want to do a one-time um, donation. Uh, but please pray for Susan. Uh, one of the things that Grace is blessed with is a connection with Campbell. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, it's great to see students who pass through, who come through, who are ministered here, and then go and minister to the nations. And, and I can say that as a Campbell University graduate who's a product of um, you, of you pouring your lives in, into us. And so um, visit that site, uh, see what Susan is doing, pray for Susan, give to, to what Susan is doing. Um, and right now, join with me as I pray for Susan. Um, Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for calling Susan out of darkness and into your marvelous light through the power of your spirit, through the work of your son, Jesus. Um, Thank you that um, you gifted her. Thank you for gifting her um, with the ability to play softball so that she could come from New Jersey and end up in Bowie's Creek. Um, and, and with with Drew, with Coach Peterson, um, and, and that she ended up here. And, and thank you for the ways that you've always been encouraging her and calling her to, to serve, to serve children, to serve people, to serve the church. And so now as she prepares to go on this trip around the world, um, I, I pray that you would be providing for her all the things she needs. She needs money um, provided through your church. She needs support in, in prayer and partnership provided through your people, God. Um, she's going to need endurance, and, and she's going to need faith and hope. Give it to her through your spirit. Uh, we pray that wherever they go, where, whatever they're doing, God, whoever they're ministering to, uh, that the gospel would be evident, God, that Jesus would be magnified, that hearts would be turned towards him and converted. God, and that as we look along the blog and as we hear these stories of, of just the power of the gospel moving and changing people, that, that you would fill our hearts with joy as well. Um, and bring her back safely, God. And now as we give, as an act of worship, as we receive the word preached to us as an act of worship, God, be present with us. Move by the power of your spirit. Uh, Draw each of us, um, even if we're not going to 11 countries in 11 months, God, we're we're going to work every day. We're interacting with people who need the gospel. Um, We live in a house full of people who need the gospel. We stare at people in the mirror every day who need the gospel. And so I pray that that we would be um, preaching the gospel constantly and that we would be uh, your people on mission where you've called us to be. Uh, And it's in Jesus' name that I pray this for his glory, for his sake. Amen. Thanks, Susan. If you are here for the first time and if you just showed up not knowing what's going on, you're you're here on a good day. We're having a potluck after uh, the service this morning, and it will be grand. Now, Scott will give these instructions later, but we want as many guys as possible to help us set up right after the service. And also, we always forget to say this until we realize there are only three people left in the room. It would be really grateful if you would help and just sort of Put this stuff up as well. I mean, if we, if a bunch of people are doing it, it takes a lot less time, obviously. But if you can only stay for the food, stay for the food, eat and run, that's okay. 
uh, we're taking names, but that's okay. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, especially if you're here for the first time. Well, this is a wonderful time of year. I mean, it has a sort of a new feel to it, doesn't it? I'm, I'm certain that there are people in the congregation this morning who are freshmen at college, whether it be at Campbell or it be some other university, uh, a community school. You are starting a new phase of your life. Maybe you've been in school for a couple of years and this is your first year in an apartment. That's new. Maybe you're teaching a new class. Maybe you're um, teaching a new grade. Perhaps you are empty nesters for the first time. Uh, Perhaps you are longing for the day when you're an empty nester. No, I'm just kidding. You think you're not, but once you are, uh, you don't want to go back, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, you love having people come in, but there's just something about having the house all to yourself. But in, any way you look at it, all things seem new at this time of year. I mean, it's football season, so it's a new year. Look, I, it's a new era at Campbell University with Mike Mentor coaching the Fighting Campbells. And I, I look, I was a, a Panthers fan. You can't believe I used to live in the mountains. And we could get Channel 3 out of Charlotte. But there was an incredible blizzard on the screen. And you really only heard. But I was following the news of, of the Carolina Panthers becoming a franchise long before uh, that day actually was announced. So I know all about number 30, at least what my old brain can remember. It's a new year at Campbell. I'm also a Tar Heels fan. And so, clearly, Tar Heels, Panthers, and even Camels should go undefeated this year. You agree with that? Unless you're a state fan. And then there's a verse in the Bible for you, 1 Corinthians 14, 38, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. That's King James, and we don't use that very much around here, so... Look, if I have to be a realist, where's the fun in that? I may as well quit watching football if I don't think they're going to win this week. Good grief, you'd think whether the Redskins win or lose is going to determine whether Chad Moody lives or not. And they're going to lose when they play the Panthers. New is not always good, but often it is. Anybody ever have one of those... Just old clunkers of a car where there are dents and dings all over it, you know, and you go to crank and it's. And it starts and, and, the, and the cloth on the ceiling's kind of hanging low, that type of thing. And, and then you get a new car and it's reliable and it gets better gas mileage and life is good. New is so often good. The sermon this morning. Is about new. It's about the new covenant. And, and when you think about it, the new covenant makes anything. The blessings of the new covenant makes anything in this world seem old and used up. Think about it this way. You, you may find yourself in a job that you are certain is a dead-end job and you need to get out of it as soon as you can. You need a new job immediately. But what's it like to be unconnected with the new covenant? I mean, 
Apart from the new covenant, we are facing the most unimaginable horror of an eternity apart from God. You used to hear preaching like that all the time. I, I don't even say things the way that I used to say, but it's still true. Apart from Jesus, we're facing eternity in hell. Paying for the consequences, paying the price for and the consequences of our sin. Which of course means that we never finish paying for them. It's sin that we both inherited and embraced. I mean I got it honestly from my parents who got it honestly from theirs. But once I, once I found it I, I, I said yeah this is, this is me. I'm all about sin. The good news is that when you believe that Jesus died. Well, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We've been talking for this past year about the biblical concept of covenant. And today, when some of you are here, several of you are here for the very first time, we're going to conclude this series that we've been going in for, on for about a year. We started in the book of Genesis and finished up about a month ago. And then we've been talking about the, the covenant, the way that God works with his people through covenant. And today is the grand conclusion of our study, except that this story never concludes. It goes on and on and on, just like we saw the covenants of the Old Testament. They move from one to the other. And just when it looked like there's, just, there's no way for God to work through covenants anymore with man because man is utterly incapable of keeping his end of the deal, then God moves to a different way of dealing with this. But it's always through covenant. Because some of you are here for the first time, I'm going to give just the slightest review and especially point you back to the message from two weeks ago. I tried to give too much of a review last week and then talk about the uh, church history class and I lost both you and me along the way. I mean, before the service, it was brilliant in my mind. And that's where it remained brilliant, in my mind only. I can tell you that. So if you were here last week for the first time and you're back today, God intended it. That's for sure. We know that. I mean, he did anyway. You're not here by mistake. What is covenant anyway? Michael Horton has informed a lot of our studies over these last few weeks. He defines covenant as this. An oath-based union under given stipulations and sanctions. An oath-based union under given stipulations and sanctions. These are the terms of this covenant. And you are expected to agree. And if you don't, these are the consequences. Uh, In Old Testament days, um, a covenant could be between two people like Jacob and Laban. We see a covenant between them. They were of equal strength. And they said, let's just make this agreement. Let's get along as best we can. More often though. A covenant was between. Uh, a, a leader and the. Well I'm sorry. A pe- leader and the people he leads was another way. But then most often between two cities or two nations. And, and, and most often it was between. People where. Or groups where one was much stronger. Than the other. Uh, so the stronger party would impose. Taxes and other sanctions on the. The group that he was protecting and the younger group or the weaker group had to receive this protection whether they wanted it or not. So here's the covenant. 
Here are the uh, stipulations for the covenant. You covenant, you break this covenant, I will break you. Uh, now, not with that kind of harshness exactly. God is always, I say exactly because there's a little bit of an element here. God has always dealt with his people, his children, through covenants. God's covenant with Abraham was very unusual. He has simply said, I promise you this land. I promise you a great people, even though you're old. Your wife is old, far too old to have children. She's going to have a child, and you're going to have descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the skies. Abraham believed it, and God declared that belief as righteousness or declared him righteous because of his belief. No stipulations on Abraham. God, who is the creator of the universe, just said, I'm going to give you all of this. And in fact, in the covenant ceremony, he said, if you mess up, I'll take the curse on myself. I want to make sure this happens. You will be circumcised as all, as will all of your male descendants as a mark of your relationship with me. Other than that, God made no stipulations. 400 years later, over 400 years later, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai, he said, now, here are the stipulations, my people, that you need to keep. And he gave the law. Well, as you know, they can't, they couldn't keep the law. But the consequences were pretty severe. Either keep the law or die. But none of us can keep the law. And even though this covenant was made with Israel, it's God's word to all of humanity. This is the law. It represents me and all my holiness and righteousness. This is who I am. And if you want to be rightly related with me, you have to keep this law. And every single point, either that or die. (laughs) None of us can do that. But instead of ridding the people, ridding the earth of of his people and starting over, God said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. It's a new covenant whenever that we think about whenever we come to the Lord's table and, and, and we talk about Jesus raising that cup and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. That's what he was talking about. In Jeremiah, what does it all mean? Well, let's read the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Then we'll think about the the meaning and the benefits of Jesus' blood being sacrificed uh, for us. Our text is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And it's our custom to stand when we read the scripture. So if you would, please stand. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God 
and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Father, those are beautiful words to be ringing in our ears. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Lord, we confess today, even as we open your word, that we are sinners in need of your redemption, in need of your restoration, in need of your touch on our lives. So I pray that you would open our hearts and fill them full with the blessings of the new covenant through the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. Some of you, actually I'm finding out more all the time, how many of you are, are actually reading through the chronological Bible called the Daily Bible with Allison and me this year. If you are caught up with your reading, you are uh, several weeks into reading through the prophets. In fact, you read this very passage yesterday. If you are right on track, you read Jeremiah 31 yesterday. But in the prophets, especially Isaiah, before the people of Judah were taken into captivity, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah from Jerusalem and Ezekiel from Babylon, where they had already been taken into captivity, some of them had anyway, All of this judgment is being preached because the people had broken the covenant of God. And day after day after day you read these horrible indictments that God makes on the people of Israel. They were worshiping idols. They were taking advantage of the poor. And they were practicing openly and privately the most horrible sins. They were religious But they were covenant breakers. God had poured out his undeserved blessings on the nation. And yet they had turned their backs on him. They not only made alliances with other countries because they said, we can't trust God to protect us. You protect us. But they worshiped the gods of those countries. And thus God promised to bring terrible judgment. On his people because of their sins. But thanks be to God. He also promised to make a new covenant with them. Many theologians consider Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34. Not only one of Jeremiah's most important contributions. But one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. I bet you've hardly even thought about this text. And yet here it is. One of the. One of the most important parts of the foundation for our New Testament understanding of who Jesus is and our faith in Christ. Why? Well, for starters, it makes no sense at all. I mean, Israel had utterly despised Yahweh. They had despised his blessings, yet he loved them and promised to make a different kind of covenant with them. One in which it would be impossible For them to fail. Because he would take all responsibility upon himself. Don't you like those kinds of 
those kinds of agreements and covenants. And when somebody says, it's going to be impossible for you to fail this. I mean, wouldn't you like for a professor to say at the beginning of the year, it will be impossible for you to fail this test or fail this class. And, you know, they say things like that, but then when they start to tell you, it's like, oh, yeah, it's possible for me to fail this. I mean, it it is absolutely possible, and I'm going to prove it to you that I can fail this. But God says it will be impossible for you to fail this covenant because I'm going to take the consequences of anything you mess up. Let's look at these four verses together. Is there anything that jumps out in you at, at you in this uh, text? Anything at all? Uh, I, I, it, week after week, this group amazes me. You're brilliant. Nothing gets past you. It's, I will. Look at all the times that God says, I will do this. I will do this. I will. Let's read it and think about the implications of what he's saying. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. They're not here now. Judgment is on the door. It's at your door. It's on your doorstep. But the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. By the the way, the northern tribes, what we mostly think of as Israel in those days, was already in captivity. God had ripped them out of there. Assyrians had taken them and they were already deluding the population because Assyrians were especially cruel. Think about this, when you hear about the, the, the mean things the Assyrians did, they intermixed their population with others. And so they forced people to be married and have children uh, with some of their people. And, and the Jews, of course, felt it very crucial in their relationship with God to stay pure, not to marry others uh, from outside the Jewish race. And these were already gone and... and, and, and Jeremiah was giving God's promise that he'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. The new covenant would not be like the one at Sinai. None of us is able to meet those conditions imposed on humanity at Sinai. None of us. But God said, look, you you missed it anyway. You just saw this as an agreement. You, You didn't recognize that this was intended for relationship. I was your father. He made provision through the sacrificial system for people to understand and receive God's forgiveness through faith. But it was all pointing to Jesus. And he said, even though I was your husband, you forsook me and you were unfaithful. So I'm going to make a new covenant. What kind? Verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law Within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, I, I, I won't take the time to go into the details about how this 
interacts with Israel and how it interacts with us who are, who are Abraham's spiritual children, those of us who believe in Jesus, and we are all those of us in Christ, God's special people, God's special nation. But let's just think about this in our own context. I mean, what is it about a law or a rule or a regulation that makes us want to just test the limits of that law, that regulation? I mean, look, do you set your cruise control at 56 or 54? You know, 59 or 60, thank you very much. Um, I mean, fallen human nature just rebels against boundaries and regulations. We know that some rules are put there for our benefit. We know that a lot of laws are. But you know what? The, rule, the particular rule that I'm thinking about is really ridiculous. I mean, it's downright foolish. And I'd be a fool to keep it. Nobody keeps that law. Nobody keeps that rule. Look, justify it any way you want to. It's impossible to keep the law perfectly. So our only hope of standing face to face before God in the condition that He requires, which is absolute perfection, our only hope is outside of ourselves. And it's not in the old covenant. It's only in a new covenant. And that's what He's promised. In that day, I will do all of the work And they will know me and they will desire to please me from their hearts. Not just so they won't get in trouble. Not just so others will look at them and say, boy, you're certainly a good person. You keep all the rules. You're better than I am. But because I will forgive their sins and never remember their sins against them anymore. And that will motivate them to love me and serve me. What is the sin, the one sin or the, or the group of sins that you committed that just will not let you go? Whether those sins were committed 15 years ago or last night. I mean, sometimes those sins trouble you a little. Sometimes they trouble you a lot. The only way you can pay for that sin is to spend eternity apart from God. And if it's eternity, you never get through paying for it. Far better that there's another way. In Jeremiah, God promised to write a new kind of covenant that would account for our sin so that His children may be eternally forgiven. Move ahead from Jeremiah almost 600 years in the future when Jesus raised the cup and he said, This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus raised that cup, he was sealing his death warrant. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the remission of your sins. Drink ye all of it. Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb that we consume. The blood is not splashed on us as it was on the Israelites when Moses read them the law and they said all these points of the law, all these commands of the law we will keep. And he splashed blood on them saying, if not, if you fail, then blood on you. Now 
the blood is splashed on Jesus. He passed through the pieces. So that God might fulfill the promise to us as Abraham's spiritual children. The same promise that he made to Abraham of grace and an inheritance. Only that we understand it so much better than Abraham did in Jesus. Abraham, as good as he was, could not keep his end of the covenant. Oh, Abraham was a great guy. Well, yeah, unless you were his wife. And he was saying, hey, she's my sister. Go ahead, take her. Have sex with her if you want to. Just don't do anything to me. Don't hurt me. Not once, but twice. Before and after the covenant. He couldn't keep the covenant. But when he believed God's promise to him, God declared him righteous. He didn't become righteous. He didn't achieve righteousness. God just said, you're righteous. This is my promise. You believe you're righteous. This was no doubt what Paul was mulling over in his mind in Romans 4. When he said that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, accomplished nothing in the flesh. There was nothing that he did that, that, that credited his account before the Lord. Certainly nothing that he did that would credit our account. The Jews used to talk about the credit of the fathers. that The account of the fathers, of the spiritual fathers helping them. But, but there was nothing that Abraham did that was any good for himself. Much less for anybody else. Now Jesus on the other hand. Jesus' righteousness is good enough. For us as well as for him. Abraham is our father in faith. In so much as he is a recipient of pure grace. He is our example in faith. Now most people think that religion is a good thing. Kept in its proper place. It's a good thing. and, And maybe there's a judgment up ahead. But you know what? That's okay. Because God justifies those who mean well. God justifies those who are on the way, so to speak. I'm I'm not there, but I'm getting there. God justifies those who are sincere and who want to do better. But wait a minute. Verse 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. That's crazy talk. That is crazy talk. God justifies the ungodly. Wait a minute. I am this kind of person. And this person has been this way. All my life I have done all of these good things. For other people. I've helped other people. I've never done this thing wrong. I've never done that thing wrong. And here's this scallywag over here. I know that word. Allison calls me that regularly. You know she's Australian. And she says you scallywag. No I'm just kidding. She does it. She should, but she doesn't. But, but here's this scallywag over here, and he's done all kinds of evil things. And now he just praises. I mean, he just says, I believe in Jesus, and he's going to heaven, and you're saying that I'm not? <laughs> People will agree that God will justify those who are trying, but he justifies the ungodly. The gospel was scandalous in Paul's day. The gospel is scandalous in our day. It will always be scandalous. I mean, everybody, 
not everybody, most will think and hope that God will justify those who try really hard. Because that's what they are hoping for themselves. But God justify those, justifies those who believe in his promise of eternal life through Jesus. See, here's the problem. To try to work your way to heaven is, is to treat relationship with God like a contract. Like I'm a worker and, okay, you lay out the terms of the contract. I'll determine whether I agree or not and I'll sign it. And, and by the way, if, if you expect too much, I'm going to see about getting a union together. And we just, I, I've got my rights. It, to, and so... So we take the law and we manipulate it. And we say, well, it doesn't really mean this or it doesn't really mean that. But this is what it really means. And, and of course, we shape the law to fit our lives and our conduct, our behavior. But the law is the law. Nothing wrong with it. It is holy. But the law cannot give life. It promises nothing but death. For those who fail to keep it. It promises life for those who keep it. But nobody can. So ultimately it only condemns. We are not like employees working on the basis of a contract. But rather we base our hope of inheritance on God's promise. On his gracious gift of covenant to his people. We are poor. He is rich. He became poor for our sakes so that we might become rich. Michael Horton uh, reminds us that the writer of Hebrews says that in order for a last will and testament to go into effect, it is generally the case that the one who made the will has to die. You know, look, you you never want your kids to get excited about you writing out a a last will and testament. You don't want them saying like, you mean when, ah, oh man. Well, in order for this new covenant to go into effect, this new testament, Jesus had to die. When Jesus said, it is finished, when the curtain was torn, the estate went into probate. The law only approves the one who fulfills the law. The promise announces that someone else has fulfilled it for us. That's really great news. I can't keep the law, but Jesus kept it for me. He kept it for me in the smallest detail. I have to die for my sin, but God poured out His wrath on Jesus who took it for me so that when I acknowledge my sin and in repentance before Him and I believe the promise that Jesus died for me, then I am declared righteous just like Abraham was. God's covenant blessing for you is the inheritance of eternal life. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink The cup of blessing. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul said, is it not a communion? That's what that word participation, it's koinonia. Is it not communion in the blood of Christ? Some some people say, 
You can't preach the gospel every week. You can't just talk about the gospel over and over. Have you read the will? This is, this is the Lord's last will. And how can we ever, ever plumb the depths of the promises that God has made to us in Jesus? So, as we close this morning, we're going to look at John 17 and think about five blessings of the covenant. Go ahead and turn to John 17 if you would. I'm going to have some references on the screen, but not, not, not the verses themselves. We're going to think about blessings of the covenant. And, and, and really, these are mentioned for you to explore this week at home group or or. Write them down and think about them in your devotions this week. If you plan to go to the couples retreat at the end of September to TBR, uh, this is a sneak preview on how you might uh, learn to pray for your spouse. This morning, though, we're going to think of them as they are blessings of the new covenant. Within a few hours of raising the cup at the Last Supper, at uh, at at the Lord's Supper, a time of communion. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Part of his prayer was agony in which he was anticipating receiving the curse of the law that you and I had earned and deserved to be on us. And he agonized and said, Lord, is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. But we also know that part of his prayer as recorded in John 17, was a prayer for blessing for all of his followers. And not just those who were following him at the moment, not just his disciples, but all who would follow him through the ages, which includes many, if not most of you here this morning. So, this prayer that is filled with covenant blessing in John 17, we want to look at briefly, and I promise you it's, it's briefly. First, in verse 11. Jesus prayed for your spiritual protection. Acknowledging that uh, Jesus... Tony, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. I'm, 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 I'm in the wrong place. Thank you. Jesus uh, uh, prayed for your spiritual protection. I- acknowledging uh, that, that, that he would be leaving his followers. He prayed for the Father to keep those who belong to him or to keep them to the end. Satan wants to destroy you. And the best way that he can do that is to wound your faith. Now, he cannot destroy your faith. If you have trusted, you have believed in Jesus, he cannot destroy your faith. But he can certainly cause you to allow your faith to weaken. That's why Jesus prayed for your spiritual protection. Rest in his promises. Rest in the promises of the new covenant, even when life is enormously difficult, and it has been for some of you. Sean's going to preach about suffering next week. Um, Sean, where is Sean? Is he he here? I, I promise you, Sean, I did not schedule you to preach intentionally on the first week of college football, weekend of college football, but it just worked out that way. I'm happy for that, but but... That all kind of is silly when you start thinking about suffering on the kinds of levels that God calls us to suffer. 
when you're suffering, rest in the Lord's promises. Or when you have failed miserably in your walk with Him. Because it's not your keeping of the law that gives you relationship. But it's your relationship that leads you according to Jeremiah 31. To keep the law. To live in the ways that God has designed for you. Secondly, in verse 13, Jesus prayed that you would have true joy. Can you imagine what it would be like to have true joy no matter what? I don't mean this silly kind of um, unthoughtful joy. But deep down joy no matter what the circumstances are in your life. Some people would think you've, you've gone over the edge. But we know that one of God's covenant blessings is a peace that doesn't make sense when we pray and trust in Him. By the way, if you struggle emotionally, don't let this concern you. Don't don't say, I've never had emotional well-being. I've never had true joy in my life. So what's up with that? I must not be a Christian. No, look. These covenant blessings have an already not yet effect. They're already here, but not anywhere close to the kind of level they will be. And if you lack any of these covenant blessings in your life for whatever reason, and your emotional struggles may well be physiological, just like the person who walks with a limp (coughs) or who has any kind of physical handicap, There's not a thing you can do about it sometimes. And if you lack that in this life, you will get it in abundance in the next life. I I, I was talking with somebody recently. I don't think I said this here. It's worth repeating. I have no biblical place I can go, no scripture, no particular passage I can go to and say, see, this is what it talks like. But I just, it seems to me that What we lack in this life as followers of Christ, we will have in abundance. So that the hungry, for the hungry, eternity will be like a continual feast. For those who are discouraged and depressed, there will always be that sense of of well-being. For those who are fearful, there will be unbelievable security. For those who have been scorned, they will know, know love at a level. It is unimaginable to them now. So whatever you lack here, you will receive an overflowing abundance in eternity. That is where your inheritance as God child lies. And don't don't get so caught up on the already not yet and saying that, look, it's all here just like it will be then. That you miss this point of Romans 8. When hope has been realized, it's no longer hope. Our hope is in heaven. That's when it's going to all be okay. That's when you will be done with the trials. And that's when you'll be done with sin. Which is a good thing according to our next point. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Then he added, your word is truth. Jesus prayed for our purity and integrity. Remember from Jeremiah 31, God promised that this Desire to live for for Christ would be written by the laws on our hearts. That that doesn't mean that that there's no longer reason for Scripture, no longer need for Scripture. In fact, 
The Holy Spirit wrote the Word. And we talk about the Spirit's power living the life that God designed for us. Well, this is the life. This is where we're told about the life God designed for us. And this Word is alive and the Spirit applies that to our hearts and gives us motivation to serve Him out of relationship, not out of duty or not out of fear. That's a covenant blessing. Purity and integrity. And even if you didn't have it this week, it's God's desire for you this week. Trust Him for it. Believe Him for purity in your life. Fourth, Jesus prays for our unity in verse 23. But not just your run-of-the-mill unity. He talks about unity with the Father and unity with Christ that they have with one another. And He says, Father, give them your love, the same love that you have for me. That's astounding. Susan said something really significant in her interview a while ago when she said, it's important for us to be unified because the more unified we are, the more the gospel spreads. And you know what? She's right. It's exactly what Jesus said. Look, just like any church, we have struggled with unity at times here or there. And I can, I can tell you this. It is amazing. When we struggle with unity... The spiritual power wanes. When we are unified as a body, it rises and people come to Christ. Unity is essential if we as a body are going to move forward with the gospel. (coughs) And when we soak in the love that Jesus has for us, that kind of unity can be unstoppable. Wouldn't it be something for us to be united in the way that God has designed for us to be united? Last, in verse 24, Jesus expresses His desire that we will be where He is. And we will be for all eternity if we're on the receiving end of His covenant blessing. And how do you do that? You just believe. Just believe like Abraham did. When everybody else would have said, look, man, you're, you're nearly 100 years old and your wife's 10 years behind you and you're going to have a child, the two of you are going to have a child. Uh-huh. He said, well, it's what God told me. I believe it. He wavered, wavered in his belief. But God counted it as righteousness to him. When you say, Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I'm the kind of sinner you say I am. And I deserve to pay for eternity for my sins. But I believe that Jesus died for me. And I trust His death as the, as the payment for the curse that comes from me being a covenant breaker. You don't have to get all that fancy and say, just say, Jesus help me. Martin Luther said, and by the way, if you struggle... Without, just say what Martin Luther said. Jesus saved me, I'm yours. Jesus saved me, I'm yours. Jesus saved me, I'm yours. If you are trusting anything other than Christ, you're not a beneficiary of the new covenant. If you are trusting Christ, then you belong to His covenant family and all the blessings of the covenant 
or poured out on you in Jesus. Well, um, just before we pray, I want to talk about, just for a second, the importance of what we're about to do when we finish here. We're going to have a benevolence offering. And then after the offering, Scott Culberth is going to lead us in our benediction and he'll give instructions for the, for the potluck. But we think of the potluck as, you know, good old Southern. Sometimes it's a Baptist. A lot of times it's a Baptist saying doesn't matter who, what denomination you are. But hey, it's time to eat. And we have really great cooks here. But you know what? Almost every time you see anything important going on in Scripture, there's a meal. There's a meal. In fact, I, I, I left out some of the language that, that Michael Horton used when I was listening to his treatment about covenants. Because I don't want to be misunderstood. But let me go ahead and say it and say it in the right context because it's what he means. He says that every time we meet and we take communion, God ratifies this covenant. Because, because see, we celebrate treat, treaties and agreements with a meal. In Old Testament days, in covenant days, days when the covenant was the big word, treaties were ratified in the meal. And every time the early church gathered, They had communion, but they had it in the context of a larger meal. Now, they had to separate communion from the larger meal because people were abusing it, as we read about in 1 Corinthians 11. But you look at the Old Testament. Not only are are people commanded to come to Jerusalem for certain festivals of the year, not only were they commanded to sacrifice animals, they were commanded a lot of times to eat those animals. And God ratifies His covenant with us through His sacrificial blood and body. Now, that's not what we eat. We're not having communion today. We don't eat the literal body and blood of Christ. But that covenant, at the very least, we can say this. I'm comfortable with Horton's words. If you're not, let's put it this way. God affirms the covenant every time. We gather at the communion table. And even though we're not gathering at the communion table today, we are communing with one another in a big way. Did you, did you see that in, in 1 Corinthians 10? I didn't, didn't allude to it, but it was on the screen about how um, <clears throat> the Christ, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not communion with Christ? And then he goes on in the next verse to talk about the fact that we are one body. In Christ, we are all Part of one body. Not only the universal church, but also this local church. And so as we commune together, commune in Christ today. Not in the same way we do at the Lord's table. That's not what I'm saying. But I just want you to think about the spiritual function of this meal that we share together today. It's part of your sanctification. It's part of your spiritual growth. And it's great chicken, you know, and biscuits and all the other stuff that we're going to have. But don't miss the spiritual component in this communion that we share together as covenant children of the Lord. Let's pray. Father... Very willingly, we confess that we are undeserving recipients.
What an amazing thing that we can stand forgiven. Undeserved. Um, and even if we tried to work for it, we fall terribly short of being able to somehow achieve that favor and merit. Even if all of everything we had, 150,000% of us could be poured into it, we would still fall considerably short of what it took to appease God's wrath. What it took to fulfill his demands. But as we learned all the way back from Genesis, it wasn't the weaker party that was forced to walk through those pieces. But the stronger party said, I'll take it on myself. And we we go from the worker-employee relationship that Brad was talking about to the father-son to the parent-child relationship. Who of us, when your child asks you for bread, you'd give them something other than that? This is the relationship we have with God through Christ, that of a child, a loved, forgiven, deeply loved child. And we see this in John 17. And stay with me uh, after this for some instruction on what we're going to do here in a minute. We'll go back there to where Jesus is praying. Uh, This is one of the longest sections. I don't know if you can see the red or not. You know, Jesus had a lot to say here in his prayer. In just moments, hours after this prayer is when he went to the cross. This is what was on his mind in those final moments, starting in verse 20 of chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, just the ones who followed him in that day that he had the closest relationships with here on earth. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Live in this love that Christ has for you. Taking away out of your mind, just putting out, putting out the world, putting out of your mind what the world is telling you about yourself, what you were telling you about yourself, that negative self-talk, and this is not, you know, self-help 101 or anything like that, but fill it with these words. 
Christ loves you this much. Let's share in that love as we, every one of us, stay today if you are at all able. Whether you brought something to eat or not, stay with us and share in this blessing that Brad has shared with us this morning.